is our, our second week in a three-week series we're doing on the book of Psalms. Um, and we're doing this series kind of for two reasons. The first is that it's just good to go through the Psalms. It's good to go through and read and teach on and learn about uh, Israel's corporate devotion to Christ and their private devotion to Christ, or not to Christ, rather. Well, sort of. Um, we'll get there. Um, the second reason is that it's, it's kind of instructive for us as well. The Psalms teach us not only how to pray as a community, but they teach us uh, privately what our devotion should look like. Okay? So there's kind of two reasons why we're doing this. So we're not trying to give you an exhaustive picture of the Psalms in any way. Uh, we're going through three different types of Psalms. Uh, and this is a scholar named Walter Brueggemann. He kind of has three major types of Psalms. Psalms of disorientation, which are Psalms of lament, kind of. Psalms of new orientation, which are Psalms of praise and then Psalms of Mission. So last week, we looked at, uh, Roger looked at with us Psalm 88, which is a lament psalm, a psalm of disorientation. And it's a really unique one, because it's one of the, I think it is the only psalm that ends in as dark of a place as it begins. There's no resolution to Psalm 88. Uh, it ends in darkness just as it began. But that's not the normal way with psalms. Even lament psalms, they don't normally stay in that place. The movement of the Psalms is always from disorientation to new orientation, uh, from lament to praise, okay? from darkness to light, despair to surprising hope in God's ability to, to rescue when it seems impossible. Uh, but it's not this new orientation or reorientation isn't a return to the pre-disorientation state. Okay? It's not a return to how you were before. Because once you've spoken freely to God, once you've been candid with him about how you're actually feeling, how you actually are towards him, then you can't return back to that place before. And that's a good thing. I mean, who would want to? One of our deepest desires as people, I think, is to be known intimately, to be loved intimately. And once we've borne our souls to our creator in the same way that the psalmist did last week, there's no turning back from that anymore. So this is a movement forward to a different, different kind of place. The Psalm of Reorientation is a psalm about God's surprising grace in the midst of trouble. His surprising grace in the midst of trouble. This is why the psalmist sings. This is why Israel sings. Because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the one who hears their lament. And the one who answers and resolves all of these expressions of grief and of sorrow. These psalms of new orientation are not just about the natural outcome of trouble. You know, the kind of thinking that brings you, you know, time will heal all wounds. Well, it's actually not going to heal all wounds. Uh, these psalms are about the decisive transformation that only God can bring out of those situations. Only God is can possibly take you from death to new life. And what's important to remember, I think, about this movement from disorientation to new orientation is that it's not a one-time thing either. Our lives are dynamic. They're on the move constantly. Uh, into disorientation, out of it again, back into it again. That's just the way our lives go. It's kind of a, a, an ebb and flow of life, from disorientation to reorientation. And I think that's why going through this cycle of disorientation, reorientation, mission is so helpful, because it's a cycle we're going to be constantly going through. So with that little introduction to Psalms of New Orientation, uh, let's get into the one we're going to look at this morning, which is Psalm 103. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Psalm 103. If you've got it on your phone, do that whole thing. Um, Psalm 103 starts uh, in a very strange way. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
You might not think that that's that strange. We've, we've sung songs just recently that sound a lot like that. We say this all the time, bless the Lord, on oh my soul, bless the Lord. The song we're going to sing after the sermon is exactly that. But I think familiarity sometimes masks what's so unusual about something. The psalmist is talking to himself in this opening section. He's trying to invoke himself to praise God. It's the self summoning the self to praise. You can sort of imagine the psalmist like standing in the mirror in the morning, kind of like smacking himself in the face. Bless, bless the Lord. Come on, you can do this. Bless the Lord. It's a bit of a funny image, but I think that's kind of what's going on at the beginning of this psalm. Um, is the psalmist trying to, to talk himself into doing something. The psalmist assumes our capacity to argue with ourselves, to talk ourselves into doing something. And I, One of the best examples I could think of as I was reading through this and thinking about this was have any of you guys been cliff jumping? Cliff jumping? Yeah? Uh, I remember being in, in Europe with some friends, and I had this friend who was a really great swimmer, and we'd been jumping off this cliff. You know, I was always jumping from really low because it scares me. Um, but he was jumping off pretty high, and he'd gotten to his mind that he wanted to do like a proper swan dive off of this cliff from pretty high. And we were like, yeah, yeah, go for it. That'll be awesome. So we swam away, and we watched from the main shore. And I kid you not, 45 minutes he stood there trying to talk himself into doing it. I, I think I fell asleep in the midst of it. But he did eventually do it. He managed to talk himself into jumping off of that cliff. And, I mean, I think that's a, a fitting image because this is not something natural to us. It's not something natural to us to jump off of cliffs. The water, it can hurt from that high. Um, and in the same way, it's not really our natural tendency to want to praise God either. Uh, when my natural tendency when things are going well isn't to praise God. It's to kind of pat myself on the back and say, yeah, this is, this is great. Uh, and my natural tendency when things are going poorly isn't to praise God either. It's to turn in, my, turn in on myself, to try to figure this out on my own. So the psalmist is not only assuming our ability to argue with ourselves, but he's also assuming our, our need and our obligation to stir ourselves up to worship God. To come here on a Sunday morning to yield yourself to God as a community, we do this. It's not a natural thing. It's something we have to remind ourselves over and over again to do. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. A posture of yielding before God, a posture of worship and surrender, isn't something that gets whipped up in us by the right music or the preacher's ability to excite your emotions, you know, maybe I'll whisper to draw you in and then pound my fist to really drive my point home. That's not what this is about, okay? That's not what the psalmist is, is advocating here. That's an artificial environment. And I think it often results in a sort of artificial faith, a faith that's easily cracked and easily broken and easily shattered. The sort of worship the psalmist has in mind here is worship that issues from a conscious decision to see myself before God, to yield myself before God, the God of the universe, and do that in obedience and in total surrender. It's a yielding that involves the whole self, body, mind, emotions, will. The question is, though, if this type of worship that I've just described can't be whipped up in us through the right music or the right sermon, uh, then what does it have as its basis? What does it have as its basis? And it's this question, I think, that's central to Psalm 103. And it's the lens through which I want to look at this psalm now. 
Uh, if worship is a consciously entered into reality, if it's something that I have to choose to do with my whole self, then why should I do it? Why should I worship God? And the psalmist provides three answers to this question, I think. And I'm not just saying three because I want to be like Roger and preach a nice, good three-point sermon. I really think there are actually three things that he's saying. Um, and here it is. Here are the three things. The first is that God is transformative. His way with us is a way of transformation. The second is that his way with us is, is a generous way. And the third is that he's covenantal. His way with us is covenantal. So let's, let's dive into this. The first point, God's way with us is transformative. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Benefits. Benefits is a good translation of the word here. And it's good if you think of, you know, you get a job and you get a benefits package. Okay? Uh, that's, that's kind of what is in mind here. Uh, if you work for a good company or organization, you probably get a job that has, you know, good health care, good dental, uh, life insurance, accidental death and dismemberment because that's probably quite common, uh, you, you get the picture. Um, the good things that come along with being with that company or with that organization, and that's precisely what the psalmist has in mind here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all the good things that God has given you and has done for you. The psalmist goes on to name a few of these things. Uh, the Lord is the one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And that's an extensive list. Why do I worship God? Because this is what he's like. This is what he's like with me. His way with me in the world is transformative. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, he renews. He works righteousness and justice. This is why we worship God. These are things that only he can do. So the emphasis here is not just on God's character. The emphasis is on his interaction with us as well. God's not distant. He's not aloof. He's the one we worship not because he's all-knowing or all-powerful or all-present. I mean, these things are true, certainly. But more important than that, we worship God because he's intimately involved with his creation. He's intimately involved in our lives. He's present with us present with his people. These are action words the psalmist is using. Forgive, heal, redeem, crown, satisfy, renew. They're beautiful, restorative action words. And we don't have time to walk through each one of those things, but I do want to look at just a couple of them. Uh, look at verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The picture that comes to mind with this first half of this verse, who redeems your life from the pit, I think is the psalm we looked at last week. If that wasn't a picture of life in the pit, I don't know what it is. But the psalmist here knows that God is the one and the only one who can rescue from that kind of devastation. He alone can redeem our lives from the pit. And if anything is reason to praise him, to worship him, then this is it. But the second half of that verse, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, uh, shows that it's so much more than just a redemption from the pit of despair. He doesn't just rescue from the pit. He crowns you. He garlands you with steadfast love 
and mercy. And whatever picture the psalmist has in mind here, whether it's you know, a victor being crowned after something, or whether it's a king being installed as coronation, the transformation is clear. The Lord's way with us is, is transformative, taking us from the pit of despair, death even, and transferring us to the realm of one crowned with his steadfast love and with his mercy. The image that came to mind for me with this was uh, this video that was going around YouTube a while ago. And it was a, a video of uh, some dogs that had been left to die in these dumpsters that people had rescued. These dogs, that you can see the ribs. I mean, they're so emaciated. All of their fur has fallen off. And they're rescued from that situation, from the brink of death. And they're restored to full health. And you see that dog, you know, three, four weeks later, a month later. You see it a year later with the family. And it's so much more than having just been rescued from the pit. This dog has been crowned, in a sense, uh, with righteousness, with justice, uh, with God's steadfast love and mercy. I mean, this is how he's talking about us, his way with us, moving us from the pit of despair, moving us to a place where we're crowned with his steadfast love and mercy. This is why we worship God, the psalmist is saying. This is why I invoke myself to praise him, because this is what his way is like with us. But, I mean, the question is, what do you do when it doesn't seem like that's God's way with you in your life? And we're not always living in a place where this seems immediately evident to us. So, I mean, what do we do then? What do we do then? And I think the answer comes to us in, in verse 7. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Uh, scholars often see this as not really fitting with the rest of the text. He's kind of talking about all the stuff that God does for us, and then he mentions Israel. And it's, why? Why did you do that? But I think, it, I think it's beautiful. I think it's a perfect place for it. And it's because in the midst of not remembering all of this stuff, of not seeing that this is God's way with me in my life currently, the psalmist is reminding us that we have to look back. We have to remember what God is actually like. The constant refrain in Deuteronomy is remember, remember, remember. Talk about what the Lord has done for you. Tell it to your children. Tell it to your friends. Write it on your doorposts. Don't ever forget what the Lord's done for you in bringing you out of Egypt. So in those moments when God doesn't seem close, when he doesn't seem like a transformative and a powerful God, we look back to those moments when it was clearly visible to us that he was. And we remember those things. And we trust that God is true to his character, to who he is. So that's the first reason, that God's way with us is transformative. The second, second is that he's, he's a generous God. His way with us is a way of generosity. That last point began with the psalmist exhorting himself to not forget all the Lord's benefits. Uh, but one of the dangers of this word is we can start to think of it as um, benefits that we somehow deserve, whether good or bad, you know, good things or bad things we deserve. Uh, but what the psalmist is showing us in the next part of this uh, verses 9 through to 14, is that it's not about what you deserve at all. The, the benefits the Lord gives us is transformational work in our lives, moving us from sin and death to being crowned with steadfast love and mercy. It's not deserved, the psalmist is saying. In fact, it's entirely undeserved. Look at verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The word translated here, repay, it's the same word that was used earlier as benefits. So more literally, it's not according to our iniquities does he benefit us. In other words, the Lord's way with us, his standard of judgment is nothing like what we do expect. 
He's generous beyond anything we could possibly imagine or even deserve. Verses 8 and 9, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Even in the face of our own rebellion, our own desire to be free from God, um, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's big in his commitment to us. He may rebuke us, he may reprove us for a time, as any loving father would, I think. But the psalmist knows and declares that he will not keep his anger forever. He's loving and he's generous in his dealings with us, shattering all our expectations about what we deserve. In verse 11, the psalmist goes on to talk even more about God's generous way with us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. God isn't calculating. He's not sitting around waiting for you to screw up and then dock you points for it. Did any of you ever watch that TV show, Third Rock from the Sun, many years ago? It's probably dating me a little bit. Um, because I'm so old, obviously. Uh, uh, it was, anyway, it was this show about this group of aliens that had come to, come to America and were living as humans. And um, yeah, there was this one great episode that I still remember. And it was the dad, who was quite quirky. Uh, there happened to be a guy on the show who kind of looked a little like me today, actually. Um, but anyway, the dad goes to this restaurant, and he has a stack of $1 bills. And he's in a very bad mood, and he sits down at the table, and he puts the stack of $1 bills, and he tells the server... Every time you screw up, I'm taking away a dollar from your tip. And every time you do something okay, I'm going to put a dollar back. And that's the way it was through the entire meal. And he just kept grabbing things off the, off the one dollar pile. And, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous image, isn't it? But I think this is often how we think about what God is like. That he's sitting up there at his big table, the stack of ones, taking them away as we screw things up. Maybe putting one back if we do something okay. But that's not it at all. God is not calculating, the psalmist is saying. He's incredibly generous. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. This word steadfast love keeps coming up in this psalm. This is the third time it's used. We get it in verse 4, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And then in verse 8, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then in verse 11, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. God's steadfast love, or maybe more simply translated, or simply put, his commitment to us is the basis of his goodness. God's commitment to us is the basis of his goodness. As a father shows compassion on his children, David says, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Now we obviously haven't gotten to the point of, of Ethan rebelling against us yet. We have a little 11-month-old baby. It's about this big. Maybe a little bit bigger. Um, but a, a week ago or so, I had a very long conversation with a friend of mine uh, about raising children, about discipline, about, uh, about parenting, positive punishment, negative punishment, encouraging good behavior. Uh, but most importantly, what does it look like to, to form Christian character in our children? And we disagreed on some points, for sure. But we were in total agreement about what was most fundamental about that. And that's that any sort of discipline that comes, uh, comes within a context of compassion. Always comes out of a place of compassion and of mercy, of steadfast love and mercy, of commitment to our kids. 
And that's what's most important, is that we frame all of this, all of our parenting, and all that we want our kids to see us as through this lens of compassion, of steadfast love, and of mercy. And I know we're going to mess it up pretty bad, I'm guessing. We're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. Um, but this is what we strive for. We strive to parent and to love our kids out of a place of steadfast love and mercy. Because that's what our God is like, David is saying. He's, com- he's a compassionate father. The one who loves us like this, but who does it perfectly. In a way that we'll never even come close to attaining. The last line, verse 14 of this section. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. I didn't know what to do with this at first. What does this mean, frame? He knows our frame. Uh, But one commentator translates it helpfully as he knows our shaping. The word is literally, he knows our shaping. It's a reference back to Genesis and the way it describes God as shaping us out of the dirt, out of the earth. In other words, God remembers that we're fragile, that we're all on our way back to the soil. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And I think this is a reminder that God doesn't treat us too harshly. He knows what we're made of. He knows because he was the one who did it. And so he has compassion on his creation. God's way with us is generous. And this is why we invoke ourselves to praise him. He's incredibly generous with us. So our last point, let's come to it now. Um, God's way with us is covenantal. His love for us is covenantal. Look at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and it knows, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. As many of you know, Carrie and I are from Alberta. And we are proud of that. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Jen. There's one other. Um, um, and we, I mean, we love the prairies. We love big skies. And we love open spaces. Uh, the sunshine, we definitely miss that. But one of the things we've loved most, I mean, I, I've loved most about being in Vancouver, is the spring flowers that come out. Uh, we get spring flowers in Alberta, too, you know, sometime in July. Um, no, it's better than that. Come on. I'm just perpetuating the stereotype. But it's nothing like Vancouver. I still remember this email I got from a friend when we told him that we were going to be moving to Vancouver. And he wrote me this long email, and I still remember it vividly. I was trying to find it in my inbox, but I, still, I can't find it anymore. Uh, but he lived in Vancouver for a long time. And uh, he wrote this email talking about just how awful the winter was in Vancouver. How it would rain for weeks on end. You would never see the sun through the entire winter. How you were constantly cold because you were always wet. But then, he said, I mean, he just painted this horrible picture of Vancouver. But then, he said, the spring will come. And the trees and the flowers will bloom. And it will look as though the streets have been festooned for the second coming. Festooned, what a great word. And you will forget all about the winter, he said. And he nailed it. I mean, he definitely overplayed the winter card. I mean, it's, Sitting in your car, minus 30, trying to like wait for the window to defrost is definitely worse than a little rain. Um, but he, he, got, he nailed the spring, the flowers, the trees. He got it right. But the thing about it is that it just doesn't last, does it? You go down a street one day that you think is just spectacular, and you drive down at the next, and some rains come, and it's all rotting on the ground. It's gross. Um, 
But I think that's the right sort of picture. I mean, that's, that's the picture the psalmist wants us to have. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And, it's, and the place knows it no more. It's quick. It's fleeting. As remarkable and as colorful as our lives may be, David remind us, reminds us that they're fragile. They're short. But more than that, he's saying, our love for God is, and our commitment to him is also marked by that same sort of frailty, that same sort of temporariness. Our hearts are fickle, in other words. But David goes on to say that's not how it is with God. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandment. Our God is worthy to be praised and glorified because although we may get angry and we may scream at him and our only words to say to him might be those of Psalm 88. His steadfast love for us, his commitment to those who fear him is from everlasting to everlasting, David says. And his righteousness to children's children. The danger with this passage is that we can start to easily think that it's a mutual sort of covenant. That I fear God, that I do his commandments, and then God will do his part. This is a mutual sort of thing. But that's not how it is at all. This covenant is not at all balanced. Yes, for my part, I have to fear God. I have to do what he's commanded me to do. But look at those words that David used, from everlasting to everlasting to children's children on those who do these things. Yes, I have to do what God has called me to do, but my ability to have any sort of relationship with him is wholly dependent on his commitment to me, which is remarkable, I think. And this is why we praise him, because he's covenanted that he will be our God and we will be his people. He's covenanted to be with us through all of the seasons and all of the colors of life through our commitment, through our waywardness. And it's no wonder that after proclaiming all of this, the only thing that David can do is break out into praise again. He exhorts the entire creation to praise God. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. And, Bless the Lord, O my soul. When we yield ourselves before God, we give ourselves over to praise him. Uh, we join with the whole of creation in doing that. We're not alone in doing that. But the psalmist is saying with that last line, bless the Lord, O my soul, he finishes it with, that we do have a part to add to that song of creation. We praise him for his transformative way with us, for his generosity, and we praise him that he's covenanted to love us from everlasting to everlasting to our children's children. Our God is worthy to be praised. Amen.